Hi, um, nice to be with you this uh, Sunday morning, or at least Sunday morning in my heart right now, and hopefully literally the case if I'm still here on in the real Sunday morning. Um, I'm going to read a passage from Matthew's Gospel, um, chapter 5. Um, so if you can turn there, we're going to read something from the Sermon on the Mount, which is a fame, the kind of longest sermon in the Bible, probably, that we are aware of that Jesus preached, um, at least in the way it's recorded here, and um, has been the most famous sermon, probably the most kind of impactful speech, perhaps, in the history of the world. The societies that have heard and heeded the message of the Sermon on the Mount have been impacted all around the world in all sorts of amazing ways. Even the culture we live in today, the things that people don't even realise they say and think and do, literally because of the Sermon on the Mount. And they may have no idea it came from the Bible. Um, so I'm going to read this out from just a, a short segment of it from um, verse 11 to verse 16. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, we just pray for your blessing upon us as we open your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been talking, haven't we, as a church, a lot recently about what it means for the church to wake up, to wake up to the, the things that God is doing all around us, the things that um, we may have been sleepy about previously or not been aware of in the right kinds of ways, um, in light of all the things that have been happening in the world in, the, in recent months, recent times. Um, so the reason we've focused here on, on this little passage is this is the culmination, this is the really significant part of the Sermon on the Mount, this, this amazing message Jesus preached about how to live as disciples of him and maybe what will happen to you if you do. And this, this bit about salt and light what it means to be salt and light is so crucial to what it means for the church to understand who we are as a people and how to live in the world we've been called to live in. So the first thing, the first image just to kind of focus on is, of course, salt. A really weird image, obviously, it's, there's no getting around that. It's a weird image for Jesus to use. You are the salt of the earth. Thank you, Jesus. What on earth does that mean? And when I was growing up, I only had negative connotations of salt. I don't know, maybe you had a, maybe you had a weird kind of upbringing, I don't know. But in my childhood, salt was almost exclusively a bad thing. You were told you shouldn't put too much salt in your chips or you'll get heart disease. And you saw the kind of, kind of if you didn't have a salt shaker, you had one of those kind of you know, packets of salt which had the kind of reminders on the, on the things. So you're kind of terrified of salt. 
If you then spilled the salt at the table, having put too much on your chips, you were then told that you had to throw some over your shoulder, like to kind of ward off evil spirits or vampires or something. No one ever quite explained the logic of that to me. Um, and I'm pretty sure there isn't one, maybe. Um, then you had things like don't put salt, don't pour salt in the wound. Okay, so salt just makes excruciating pain if you've already got terrible pain anyway. Maybe if the vampire bites you, having spilled the salt, having put too much salt in your chips, then of course, you know, rub the salt in the wound, it'll make it even worse. And then another one was um, salt, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. Don't trust the things you hear, take things with a pinch of salt. So again, kind of just don't trust stuff, you'll be in excruciating pain, vampires will come after you, you might get heart disease if you have too much on your chips. Bit, bit strange, really, to kind of think of salt as a positive image. How, how are we to understand ourselves as salt of the earth, the salt of the world? Um, and then we've got these kind of bizarre, different kind of connotations of this image. Um, one of the key things, obviously, that you may have heard many times before is in the ancient world, salt is understood very differently to um, the way we may understand it today. It was, it was seen as a, um, a real source of value. People would actually trade in salt. It was actually an incredibly important um, uh, thing to actually kind of use in, in general kind of societal life. It was a, a key way in which food could obviously be transported before you had fridges and long life anything um, to be able to transport over long distances. So there's a preservative aspect to salt. And there's also, of course, one that we still preserve today, which is why you put salt in your chips, is flavouring. So there's a sense that Jesus is working with here with this image. We're both to be preservatives, keeping life and flavouring to life, making life taste good, showing life what it ought to be, showing how amazing this world really is that God has created and the life we've been called to. That's something about what the kingdom of God is, the church in action is. We're to be those who preserve life and to bring life where it is. And sadly, the church has not always been known for doing that. We don't always seem to be known as, as those who sort of show how amazing this, um, this gospel really is, this kingdom really is, the saltiness of our speech or the saltiness of our actions. What are we, what are we doing in the world? What, what, how are we preserving the world from decay? How are we standing up for truth? How are we showing life as full of flavour, showing in technicolour, not in black and white. How do we do that as Christians? So often we can, you can give the impression, Christians can give the impression, we can all give the impression at various times of our life that the good news that we are speaking about is kind of ne neither that, all that good or all that newsworthy. The news can be far more exciting elsewhere. We look to so many other sources where the news is more exciting to us than the good news. Even if we talk about it on a, on a, on a Sunday at church, whether in our hearts or otherwise. We, we speak of this, of this good news, and yet does our life show how good this news is? Does it, does it emanate from aspects of what we do, the decisions we make? Do people who, who aren't Christians who know you, do they know that there's something just weird, different about, about the thing that orients you, the kind of oil that you're running on? It's a different kind of thing. Or is it kind of like, you know, come and be a Christian, you can basically live the same kind of life that everyone lives, except there's a few times when you won't quite know what we're up to on a Wednesday evening and a Sunday morning, or maybe a Sunday evening as well. We do some religious stuff in and around it, but basically in and around all of that, the majority of our life, 
we spend doing virtually exactly the same things that everyone else does and responding in virtually exactly the same ways. Um, that's the danger, that as Christians, we can so get used to being in the world, which we're called to be, that we become of it. We become sort of stuck in the ways that the world imagines things. And we lose, this is what Jesus is saying, we lose our saltiness. And the people aren't looking to the church and going, wow, what is it that you've got? What is it that you're running on? What is this hope to which you seem to be called in your life? As Peter tells us, have an answer for that hope. Do we have that? Do people see that hope in our life? A famous um, preacher and theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was a, a German pastor in uh, the 1930s who sort of defied the Nazis in various ways, setting up underground um, colleges, basically, to train um, pastors at a time when you weren't allowed to do that for various reasons. Um, he, he spent time as a preacher as well in London um, after Hitler had become chancellor in Germany. So he's aware of all of the crazy ways that the state is making the church do stuff that they ought not have been happy with them doing, but they were happy to comply because it was the Nazis. And so it's harder for some churches to say no to that. Um, here's what Bonhoeffer says in later that year when he's preaching a sermon in London. Out there, he's, he's imagining, thinking about the kind of life in the city in London. Out there, they're all running after the latest sensations, the excitements of evening in the big city, never knowing that the real sensation, something infinitely more exciting, is happening in here. Why do they not know this? How is it possible that thousands upon thousands of people are bored with the church and pass it by. Why did it come about that the cinema really is often more interesting, more exciting, more human and gripping than the church? The church was different once. It used to be that the questions of life and death were resolved and decided here. Why is this no longer so? Why is this no longer so? 1933 saying that, that could just be said exactly the same today. What is it about the way the world looks everywhere else for life and excitement and adventure and the stories that they want to drink from and they don't want to come to the church? What is it about that? What is it about the message sometimes that the church gives out or that we give out as Christians in our lives that actually don't make Jesus all that compelling? What he's talking about we lose that sense of the saltiness of what it means to be christians in the world to be those who preserve life stand up for truth stand against things which are lies and and unhelpful things that um will be bad for people and then also the the opposite not the opposite the kind of complementary aspect of that of the flavor of life as we've been saying are we doing that are we actually living lives which are alive or do we look kind of like pretty bland and dull, insipid, kind of motoring along, getting on with being Christians because we're used to it, we can handle it, we can kind of control this aspect of our life, we can control our schedule. We lost something of what Jesus says when he says, be the salt of the earth. He says, when that happens, <laughs> when you lose that, when you lose your saltiness as Christians, you become good for nothing strong, salty words from Jesus. If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If you become kind of indistinguishable from the dirt on the ground, as it were, because it, you just lose that sense of being edgy, something different, something, something other than what the world offers. And we just become kind of one with what's kind of going on. You kind of be synonymous with the ground itself, almost. This is why the church needs to be, and always has been, different. It was supposed to be a completely different kind of community to any of the communities we see out there in the world. So Jesus speaks again of us being the light of the world, a city on a hill which can't be hidden. A city on a hill that can't be hidden. We think of Jerusalem, the great city on the hill that you have to ascend up to. No doubt is in Jesus' mind as he's speaking to his hearers. Think of how the glory of Jerusalem and people knew that it was a light. Israel was always a light to the nations and Jerusalem was right smack bang in the middle of that. It was the, it was the key, the center of God's purposes. And we now as the church are the city that shows the light of the world around us. We're blazingly, weirdly different kind of light to the stuff we see around us in the world. Again, sadly, it's not always clear that the church is that light, which looks different, which is a city on a hill. We kind of think actually we'll just blend in, we'll blend our lights in with other things around us that we, um, that we see happening, or we kind of let ourselves be led this way or another way. Over lockdown, it's been interesting to see how many national church leaders in this country have sort of just ended up sounding like sounding boards or echo chambers for whatever the latest thing um, in the political or social atmosphere has been pushing. So the church will end up saying, what, what are we supposed to be worried about next? This, this issue, okay, I'm really sorry about this issue. And what, what else, what else is there? Okay, now we should be worried about this, okay? So kind of taking our cue from what the world says is important. Now, there may be lots of things the world says are important, which are in fact important. But is it this which is shaping that? Or is it the euphoria of the culture we live in? Is it the stuff that's going on around us and the draw to be accepted, to be liked? I think it's quite obvious that many, many churches in this nation have really just made statements because they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to look bad. So there's maybe many good reasons to make statements on all sorts of issues. But are there motivations for those things because we are wanting to be faithful to this call, to this kingdom that we've been called to? So the Sermon on the Mount is not, as, as you might, we may all have been kind of tempted to think at times, the Sermon on the Mount seems like it's about being passive. You know, there's lots of, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the meek, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies, wonderful, glorious phrases, which are all about what it means to be Christians in the world. Um, but there is a sense in which those things can be seen as, let's be passive and docile, Let's kind of go to sleep a little bit. Let's just let everything happen around us. And if someone, yeah, if you hit me, I'll, yeah, I'll turn the other cheek. You can hit me again. I'll go an extra mile. I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Let me be led by whatever happens around me. It would be mean of me. It would be unchristian of me to kind of respond or, or to kind of challenge any of these things. That'd be a, a gross misunderstanding of what, what Jesus is on about here. I mean, he's quite obviously talking about how defiant this kingdom is to the kingdom of darkness. The city on a hill is defiant to the darkness around it. Even turning the other cheek is a, a kind of defiant thing to do to someone who thinks they have power over you by being able to hit you 
in the face. Or a Roman centurion who was allowed to ask a Jew to take their pack for a mile. We were with our children going through the Sermon on the Mount not too long ago and coming up to that bit where he says, you know, go the extra mile. We've been talking about this phrase that we hear all the time, just do a bit more work, work a little bit harder or something. If you imagine it's a Roman centurion, a big burly Roman centurion coming up to a Jew and saying, carry my pack for one mile, maggot. We've been, we're acting this out in our, the children's bedroom. Um, I normally have to be the bad guy in most illustrations um, and then get toppled in some, in some way. So this very big belly room said, carry my pack, you maggot. This is what you have to do. I have power over you. And then the Christian responding, or the, or the Jew, no, I'm not going to carry your pack for a mile. And it's like, what? How dare you? How dare you defy me? I'm going to carry your pack for two miles. What does the, the centurion do in that situation? It's a completely, it messes up that power dynamic. It messes up the fact that the centurion is supposed to be in control. The Christian is actually controlled by or, or led by a completely different kingdom, not led by Caesar, not led by the things that happen around, the, the things that we're coerced into doing. The Christian is come drumming to a completely different beat, one that allows you to love your enemies, allows you to turn the other cheek, which doesn't make any sense, um, not in that culture or even in ours, to be honest. Um, it's, it's, it's a natural thing to want to defend yourself against against attack in all sorts of ways. But Jesus's kingdom is of a totally different kind. It's incredible, radical, and it is very defiant. So you don't, you don't take the pack the extra mile in order just to kind of be nice and not cause any trouble. You actually do it to show actually that the kingdom is different. It, it witnesses to how different and amazing this kingdom is, that you'd be willing to do that. So our problem, I think, I mean, there's all sorts of bad kinds of defiance as well. I mean, you might, you could get, get into that kind of language and think, oh gosh, and we, I thought we were supposed to be gentle. I mean, we are, we're absolutely supposed to be gentle um, in, in all sorts of ways. The Bible talks about it in so many ways to curb the sense of political revolution or something, or people overturning um, the, the, the kind of authorities that they're under. Um, but those are probably not really likely to be our issues in the church today. It's, high, it's highly unlikely that and the average church is going to be wanting to overthrow some um, you know, officials or authorities around them. It's far more likely that we're going to be tempted into a subtle kind of compromise or a subtle sense of just shirking back a little bit from what we really ought to be saying and ought to be doing in this world. So our problem is not that we're too defiant, probably, it's that we're not defiant enough or not for the right reasons, because we're paralysed by fear of what might happen if we really did live this kingdom out, if we really did act as salt and light in this world. Think about the kind of defiance that David shows to Goliath. I'm just going to turn there very briefly in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Remember, the, the Goliath comes out. It's another story which we've acted out many times in our house. Guess who gets to be Goliath? and plummeting to the floor several times while each child gets to um, have their own go at throwing stones at my head. Um, Goliath comes out and he's absolutely terrifying. He's got something like 40 kilograms weight of armor. He's nine and a half feet tall. Every day he's coming out um, to the Isra Israel's camp and saying, which one of you is gonna challenge me one-on-one -on -one, and that will be the, we'll end this war by one of you just coming to fight me. 
Everyone's cowering and terrified in fear. David comes along, not even supposed to really be there because he's just a young shepherd boy. And his response is, um, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Sorry, David, you don't seem to have learned the lingo. You don't seem to have understood how we do things around here. Go back to your kind of shepherd life. It doesn't seem like you understand how it works. We've learned how to talk church here, David, and you don't seem to have learned that yet. We've learned, you've not learned how to be nice. You've not learned how to kind of be sensible and understand how things really work in the real world. Go back to your, your sheep. David actually, no, David knows something that they don't. David knows something about who this God is. He says, this God has delivered me from bears and lions and he will, he will deliver me here as well. And he will deliver Israel. He's got that sense of the kind of pride in the kind of kingdom that he's belonging to. Uh, amazing kind of defiance of the enemy that comes against them. So again, this is a kind of links in to the bit that Jesus uh, I read out at the beginning um, about the trouble that you will get into if you want to be salt and light. So of course there's good works that we'll do in the world and we'll Christians have also been known as doing loads of great works and people may go, look, Christians are doing really good stuff. Look at the great stuff Christians are doing. Um, they're making the world a better place, which is true. Christians have been good news for the, for the most, almost all of the cultures that they've been to historically. Over the long haul, you can see, even where there's been terrible things that the church has done, there's, all, there's been a, a layers and layers of good things, good salt and light, bringing truth, bringing challenging against against bad structures or bad um, practices and then bringing light where there's been darkness so the church absolutely does those things and but it's not all rosy clearly jesus says it just before he talks about salt and light he says blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you and that's that's the lead-in to being salt and light so of course there will be times when people see the good works of um, of christians and say aren't you all great but actually more often than not the more you press in and try to challenge the things that you want to challenge the more you want to speak truth and light into darkness the more kickback you're going to get the more persecution the more trouble will probably come your way and then with the church being hoodwinked into a kind of safety niceness let's not rock the boat let's not do anything that kind of causes any kind of trouble and there's good reasons for not causing trouble as i've said there's also bad reasons for not causing trouble because the gospel will cause trouble if you go, go and read the book of acts they didn't have to try they didn't have to look out look for trouble trouble would came and found them when they put their head above the parapet when they said actually this is who we stand for this is the kingdom we're part of Molly and I, my wife Molly and I, many times faced unbelievable moments of uh, completely unfair or unjust um, persecution in various times of our life, whether it's threatening of your job or, um, or friends kind of completely betraying you or turning away at certain times when you just think, gosh, this is just bizarre. Um, 
these things come against you at times and they're just so hurtful. And you think, oh, we've been doing so much good. I thought we were, ju- I thought we were doing good. We're not evil people. What are we do- what's going on? And so often you can get quickly discouraged, but then Jesus would encourage you to go, actually, no, be encouraged when some of this stuff happens. It doesn't seem to make sense. It isn't really fair. Um, sometimes that's just part of what it means to be salt and light. You're going to have to pay a price to be salt and light. It's the price you pay for following Jesus. This whole Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing is about the price you will pay um, when you try to live out the life of this kingdom. So again, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes against you. It's going to happen. It's going to be difficult. Whatever happens, you can avoid it. You can try to kind of stay back if you want. You can try and kind of, you know, acquiesce or compromise with the world around you. But if you want to follow Jesus to the end, be salt, be light. Don't lose your saltiness. Be that different light that the world needs so desperately, even when it doesn't know that it needs it. Again, one more tough-sounding, salty phrase from Jesus. John, John um, chapter 15, um, 18 to 19. I wonder how often you dwell on this. It's not one for your fridge magnet, is it? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were one of the world, of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you hard to think of that, that the world hates you if you're a Christian, because you don't often probably experience that in our society. It's not like people are coming going, because you're a Christian, I hate you. That's clearly not the experience of most Christians. But what about when Christians start speaking out their beliefs or the implications of their beliefs or start challenging the things around them, which are not good, being that salt and being that light? I think I wouldn't be surprised if you start doing that If you start praying and go, God, where do you want me to start speaking? What do you want me to start doing? What good works do you have for me to do? They're not always going to be received well. So Peter's saying, don't be surprised. It glorifies God. It's part of what it means to live in the kingdom, to be a witness in this world. So part of the waking up message here is to say, put down the kind of idols of safety and fear and comfort, compromise which would threaten all the blessings that God has for you, even when bad things may happen. Jesus is calling us to a better way, to a different way, the way of his kingdom. It's not like anything you will see on this earth. It's not just like the world 2.0, looking really similar, but a little bit better with a bit of grace sprinkled in. It's a completely different entity to follow Jesus. And it's wonderful and glorious and amazing. And he calls us to it and he empowers us to it. So if you're hearing this going, gosh, this is all sounding pretty terrifying. Do I have to start going and getting in trouble and getting arrested? Well, no, don't go looking for trouble, but absolutely pray and think, God, where have I compromised? Where have I given in to fear? Where have I not said what I ought to have said in this situation? It might be different for each one of you as you listen to this. Just ask God now, what, where, do you need me to step out? Where do I need to recover my saltiness? Where do I need to challenge? Where do I need to speak life and light? What situations in my life? God says, don't worry, don't be anxious. I will be with you. Just as he was with David, with the lions and the bears and Goliath, he will be with you, whatever happens. So don't be scared of getting in trouble if that happens. 
if it's what is going to happen at some point, which it probably will. Don't be scared. God is with you. So living out this kingdom is just following God's will, following what he has for you and letting him empower you in all of the difficult things that may come your way. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your good news. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for what you are doing in the church, what you have been doing for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years through the many, many courageous men and women of God who've fought bravely, who've stood against bad things, stood up for good things, spoken light into darkness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand on the, their shoulders and continue to do the same in our generation, Lord. Protect us, Lord, from the attacks of the enemy to over that overwhelm us, that discourage us. Lord, give us the joy of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be joyful, that we would bring flavour, that we would show people around us what life is really about, the abundant life that you offer us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>